Um, and we're in a, our vision series this term, our vision to see the glory of God known across London and the nations. Today we fix our eyes on London. Steve is speaking next week on the nations. And for us to have a vision of our life and our life together as a church is absolutely critical. Amen. Proverbs 29:18 says that without a prophetic vision, without an understanding of the future, the people perish. People cast off restraint, one translation says. Without a vision, we start wondering and we actually have no focus or meaning and purpose to our life and we give ourselves to things that don't actually in the end count. One Catholic writer said this, your life is shaped by the end you live for. The, your life is shaped by the end you are living for right now. It's funny, Micah comes home every now and again. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we allow him to come home twice, three times a week, tea and food, and then... Um, but he comes home from school with these like random Chinese words. Because at school, he, he is six years old at primary school and he is learning Chinese. When I was at primary school, we were not learning Chinese. We were learning French. All primary schools, as far as I was aware, learned, learned French. Bonjour, ça va, ça va bien. That's about it. That's all I've got. But we learn French. Micah is now learning. There's a Confucius center at his school and they learn everything. So he's come up with these amazing Chinese words. Why is, why is a primary school now teaching Chinese and not French? Because the future is in the East. Amen. And there's suddenly an awareness in the school system that actually if we want to align ourselves with the future, where is power shifting? It's towards the East, it's towards China. So we're not learning French anymore. Our apologies to anyone who's French and the EU and everything like that. <laughs> it's now the future's Chinese. Because what we think the future is affects our every day. Amen? And that's a silly example to get the point across. But the world right now, with this materialistic worldview, has a quite an interesting, and I would suggest quite a dark view of the ultimate future. When you, when you look at the, the films particularly that are out, the ones that portray the vision of the future, it's generally like one guy with his family, pulling a cart behind him, eating food with the rats, kind of fighting off zombies, it's not like a positive picture of the future like anything of like this is what the life is going to be it's bleak because there is this awareness even in the physical fabric of the universe that entropy is setting in and somehow people are like, is the universe shrinking we're going to collapse it's all going to get too hot some it's going to physically everything is imploding on itself and so the ultimate end of everything, even if I have a rich life now and I die at 80 years old, actually the end of everything is just dark and bleak. And yet the biblical vision of the future is radically different. Amen. Interestingly, we're not anti-materialist in church. I hope you know that because Jesus enfleshed himself in material and was raised in material and the new heavens is material. We should be the most materialistic people, but with a spiritually infused vision of the future, whereby the earth and the heavens get joined together and there is a glorious hope that is coming for us and this is the future that we want to align ourselves with. It doesn't feel like it very often now, let's be honest. And this is where Habakkuk comes in because he lived and he ministered in a violent and dark time. He lived in an age of contention and polarisation. 
And some, some prophets, they spoke to power, they spoke to kings, they spoke to monarchs, and they called out the injustice that was being done at a leadership level against the, 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 the peoples. Habakkuk's ministry was quite different. His ministry was one of pouring his heart out to God. So he didn't speak primarily to power, he spoke primarily to God. It's interesting because he saw the ills of the day, he saw the wrongs, the contentions, the injustice that were happening, but he didn't just go to the pub on a Friday night, have a few drinks with his mates, like chat about what was going on, the, how bad the politicians are, and then move on, forget about it, and flick on Netflix and forget about it for the evening. Habakkuk actually took the injustice that was weighing on his heart and he poured it out to God. He said, this is what's happening. And he's a bold so-and-so, this guy, because he speaks to God and he talks like he actually expects an answer. I mean, when you, when, when you listen in on people's prayers who actually seem like they know God, sometimes they're like, it feels like they cross a line sometimes. Have you heard that? Some people, they pray and you're like, can you really say that to God? It's like, it's God, you know. But people who actually live with God, they have this robust relationship. And Habakkuk pours out everything before God. And so he says something like this in Habakkuk 1. He asks this question of God. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence? He says, look at the news, look at the violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Like, he's just called God idle. You know, like this. You're like, you step back from Habakkuk. You're like, you're on your own now, mate. Like, if God answers you, I'm, I don't want to be near you when God answers this prayer. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. He lives in a day of violence, perversion, injustice. And you think, isn't this our day, destruction? You think of communities all around our nation, even in London, where it feels like there are pockets that have just been left behind just to kind of implode and sometimes kill each other. We have destruction, we have violence across our city with a knife crime and gang culture in women's wombs, violence being committed to babies, strife and contention in this Brexit age that is increasingly polarized, where no one seems to be able to speak a civil word if you don't agree with everything that I believe right now. And Habakkuk's cry is, Lord, when will you intervene in this darkness? When will you come? The amazing thing is this, that God does answer. He doesn't just fry Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk gets bolder and he says, okay, Lord, I've got some more questions for you because I'm not sure where you are with these kind of issues as well. And then, and then Lord, the Lord responds in chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Make this very clear. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And doesn't the future world often seem slow to come? Doesn't the prayers that we pray, Lord, would you rend the heavens and come down? Would it be here on earth as it is in heaven? Those kind of prayers, it can feel like they are slow in being answered, aren't they? We live with this incredible tension as Christians, with these amazing promises of God and this sense of faith and urgency that everything could be done tomorrow. And yet at the same 
sometimes church life can feel so slow. You think, Lord, let us get there quicker and quicker and quicker. And we live with this tension. And so God says, no, you write it down, make it really clear. This is going to come. And he gives this answer in verse 9 of chapter 2. And he gives this twofold promise. One, that judgment is going to come on all the injustice and the evil that's happening. And one, that glory is going to fill the earth. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. When you look through the sad history of so many nations and you think the number of towns and cities and even um, empires that have been established on bloodshed, judgment will be had. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? But in the middle of this judgment on evil doing there is this incredible promise the end time vision of all things for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea amen if you wanted one verse in this week to memorize write down and memorize memorize this verse this is what our vision lands on our vision is to see the glory of god known across london and the nations it is a biblical foundation with with a vision to see every square inch of this city filled with goodness and beauty and justice the glory of the lord amen this is what we're shooting for. And if, if as a church we align ourselves with this vision, it means that everything is shaped by this. We align all of our life, our corporate life, our finances, our prayers with this vision. That every square inch of London and the nations will be filled with the glory of God. And Habakkuk was not just speaking like, it's not like, oh my goodness, no, we didn't know that. This was a, a strong theme of the prophets. So Isaiah himself prophesied almost exactly, and Habakkuk is probably taking these inspired words again. Isaiah 11, 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is the end times. All pain is going to go. It says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah saw the same vision. It's not this apocalyptic vision of bleakness and darkness and brokenness. It's one of hope and life and glory and relationships and everlasting joy that goes on and on and on and increases forever and ever and ever. One of the reasons why, you know, Chrissy said we should practice in worship because we've been doing this for a long time. Ten years ago or so, like, if I'd heard that message, I'd be like, really? Like, I can cope with kind of 15 minutes of worship, but then I'm like, I'm tired. I want to sit down. You tell me, you know, 10,000 years of singing, and then there's going to be another 10,000 more amazing grace. Like, I'm not sure that's good news. But what I didn't get was two things. One, we're going to have glorified bodies. We're not going to get tired. And also, every time we sing another truth of God, our joy is only going to increase. And our joy is going to increase. And when you walk up this ever-increasing cycle of joy, it will become increasingly energizing, not tiring. And we just find it hard to get our heads around because the vision of the future is so much better than we can ever imagine. Amen. Revelation speaks about this future. I want to just read you some Bible, if that's okay with you. Um, you can't say no, so. But let me just read some... Because, because John sees some more clarity as to what this would look like. 
So John sees in Revelation 21, the Lord showed me the holy city Jerusalem. And when you hear that, don't just think one city like this city in the Middle East is going to get glorified. You've got to think this is the culmination of all of human culture and creativity, all of our productivity, everything that we are culminates in this new civilization symbolized in the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And again, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, just fix your eyes on the future. This is the last note that will ever be struck in human history. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is is the lamb and by its light will the nations walk and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen? Amen. This is where we are headed. This is what we are aligning our life up as a church. And I'm excited for a few reasons. Firstly, this is biblical. You're going to find this all over Scripture. When you start asking God, show me your glory in the Bible, you will come across it in every single passage that you will ever... It's there. This hope of the glory of God. It's also countercultural because we're living in an age that is trying to find hope from within. And I would suggest the more we've done that, the more our mental health has deteriorated and we are slowly imploded as society. And actually there is a countercultural hope in taking our eyes off ourselves onto the glory of God. And I also love this because as we fix our eyes on this vision that is God-centered, that we orient our lives around God, and that God doesn't orientate himself, his life around us. You get the simple but profound difference. You can be in church sometimes and get the feeling like God is actually just your divine butler who's there to give you the thumbs up to any life choices you make. But we are saying, no, God is at the very center and he shapes us as a church. We move around him. He doesn't move around us. We follow him. He doesn't have to follow us and our agendas. And when we do this, when we say we're going to fix our eyes on the glory of God, we have this amazing promise that we are actually walking in line with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus promised in John 16, 14, that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he is going to glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. And so we have this We cannot force a spiritual awakening across London. We cannot bring about a revival. We cannot do a few tricks, read a manual, go through this process and bingo, we've got a revival that pops out in 2020. We can't do that. But we can position ourselves as best as possible in a way that God would be pleased to bless that kind of people group. And if we put the glory of God before us first, we have this confidence that we are posturing ourselves in a position 
Christian work, God would love to bless that kind of heart. When you read about revivals of, of the past, what you read about is this very simple, profound thing that happens is that people walk away from gatherings and meetings and times with God just aware of God and his glory. All they think about, talk about, pray about, enjoy is the glory, the beauty, the strength of who God is. And if we can be a people saturated with the knowledge of God, please would you do that Lord Lord would you do that amongst us I pray Lord there is so much intellect in this room there is so many gifts and talents there is so much for us in this room but I pray first and foremost would be be known as a people saturated with God I pray known Lord there will be something in our face and our eyes that says they've been with God pray for that please do that even now just fill our hearts i pray lord there break be breakthrough in our hearts i pray and i I speak gently to you and lovingly to you if i don't even know if you're not a christian here and you don't know why we're excited just pray for you as well it's not an agenda i have for you all i'm saying is i found joy and i want to pass on this source of joy in god please lord just be with us in these moments, I pray. And what I want to do is really ask the question, why is, why is this verse, why is this vision good news for London? Because it is good news. Because even for, you know, for something, okay, glory of God, is this like an, a religious campaign that you're on? You know, like you've got some kind of propaganda thing that you want to just, you know, roll out and... Um, here's, here's a fundamental belief that I live with and all of my Bible teaching ministry and I hope in time that this church, the kind of foundations of what we're really about is that everyone who moves to this city and when, when you're here today, whether you're a Christian or you're a Buddhist or you're a Muslim or you're an atheist or an agnostic, however you come, however you've come to this city, how, however you go about your day, the fundamental longings of every single heart in this place and in this city are the same that every human soul longs and the longings are universal. So if you come today and you feel like I have these passions and these longings, don't feel alone. Because that's not a thing just for you, that's for every single heart. To long and to want for stuff is to be human. And the message we have as church is not this. You should stop wanting all that stuff and longing for all that stuff. Our message is, we know you long for that stuff and we found the thing that will actually give you all the fulfillment and all the, all the joy and all the satisfaction for your heart. We found the real thing. Our message is, let us take you past the things of this world and show you the true source of everything that will make everything else in your life make sense. Because there are millions of people in London today longing and searching and working hard to fulfill the thing they have in their hearts. It's one of those, I actually love London. I love the energy. I love the ambition. I love the sense of drive. People come here because they want something. I love that. We should be pro that and say, hey, and we found the real thing. If you keep searching and if you keep longing, looking up, if you ask and seek and knock, Jesus says you will find the real thing and it's Jesus Christ. Amen. People today are, are, are looking, but 
they are latching on just to the wrong things. The longings are good, the findings are wrong. Will Smith, who I guess some of you know from different like iterations of his career uh, at different points, some of you older ones will be Fresh Prince, others Independent Day, whatever. If you're like 12 today, it might be he's a blogger because he's just taken up blogging and I'm sure he's going to dominate the blogging scene as well and that's just what he does. But in one of the blogs that I did watch, okay, um, he says this, just as he was like talking about, I can't remember what it was, like bungee jumping off like and I don't know, some crazy thing. He says, we are all just latching onto different things to try and find fulfillment for the same longings. To be human is to have wants. And he says, I come, I come and sometimes taste it, but I never find it. This is Will Smith, who has essentially everything at his fingertips. And he's saying, I sense when I get close to it, but I never get it. And I keep looking. It's like, just plain as fact, like, and I would say we've got to listen to people who have tasted more than we will ever taste. Listen to their experience of that and say, is there maybe more then than the taste that we can have in this world? And the Christian hope is yes. The Christian message is this, that we have actually found it, and it's the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 5 too that we rejoice. We Christians, we walk around London and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's our hope, we found it. That's what brings us joy. Every time we feel our joy ebbing away, where do we turn to? We don't turn to Netflix, we turn to the glory of God and we feel joy rising in our hearts. We're gonna see him, we're gonna know him, everything is gonna be okay, the future is bright. Hallelujah. So I wanna just unpack a few brief things about the glory of God. And here's three reasons why. Firstly, if you're a Christian, I want to invite your heart even now to see him and know him. I just want to give you another pathway to the glory of God. Even as I speak, I pray. I believe singing worship is worship and I believe preaching the word of God is worship and drinking coffee is worship and giving money is worship and walking home is worship. This is a worship moment, I believe. And if you're not a Christian here, I want to give you an invitation to know the glory of God. There's also a third reason that I just want to make really clear that if you're a Christian here today, I want to help you and equip you to know how you can share the glory of God with your friends tomorrow morning. Does that make sense? So that as you go back and someone may ask you, how was your weekend? Maybe your first response was, I went to church and I learned some stuff. That could be your first response rather than your last response if they keep digging. <laughs> and I just want to create some like, some stuff in your brain to think, actually, I've got some stuff to share with my friend. Does that make sense? And I, I, what my hope is that every Sunday is a sense of this. It's like a bit, little bit of equipment, like, oh, okay, I've never thought about that. When someone asks me on Monday or Tuesday, how was your weekend? It's like, I went to church again. It's like, you always going to church? Yeah, I went to church again. And I found out more about God's. Like, it's just amazing. You don't have to get weird about it. Just say, this is what I've learned like you know you do the rest you make it up but um you know don't make up the bible make up you know like i can't tell you how you're going to converse but anyway um the glory of god stay on track what is the glory of god it is definable but our definitions don't constrain him mm, yeah. 
And sometimes we go one way and we say, oh, we can't put God in a box, and so we never give contours or definition or doctrine to who God is. And the Bible is full about the nature, the character, contours, definition, doctrine. It's the glory of God. But everything we say about God, which is true, is not the entirety. There is fullness to be had in the experience of these things. John Calvin used to say that the Bible is like child language for little children, like God, God is speaking to us concepts that are infinite and eternal to finite beings. So he has to find means in which to communicate infinite realities. So what I want to do is just lay out two things, that the glory of God that we find is the nature of God, who he is, and the glory of God in scripture is the presence of God. Another stream that we have in the, the, this sense of the glory of God is the weight of God. I'm not, I'm not going to touch on that today, that really the weightiness of God kind of gives meaning and significance to the nature of who he is and his presence. But I just want to talk about these two things, the nature and the presence of God, and just, I hope, stir your heart so that you might have fuel in your heart to say, Lord, would you fill London with this news, with this being, with who you are? Amen. Amen. Firstly, the glory of God is the nature of God. Jonathan Edwards, who Christians and those who don't believe in Jesus both affirm was one of the greatest brains that America has ever produced. He says the glory of God signifies the emanation, the coming out, the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. God is a spirit being. He is invisible to a physical eye. And so he goes public with his glory in demonstrating out of this eternal bubbling joy of his. He goes public and puts his glory on display in the created universe that we have around us. He says, I want to put this on display. I want to show it off to you, to the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit between us, and I want other beings to have the same kind of joy that we have. Did you know that you are able to have the same joy that Jesus has in the Father right now? That is possible for you, and you're on this ever-increasing trajectory of getting to there. It's incredible. It's, I want other people to enjoy this. So I'm going to put my display on public. I'm going to hang my glory on the walls of the universe so that there may be creatures who could walk around this and look around and see who I really am. I love visiting people's homes. Like it's, um, I just like, I love it. I, some of you might do as well. You won't confess it to me here because, you know, I, I know how this goes. I do public confession. You look at me blankly. I've got, I've got used to it now. But I love, I, I love, go, especially people I've not been to. You know, you, you go around their house because, like, basically, I am quite nosy, and I just like getting to know who people are. And when you get to go to visit someone's flat, or someone's place, you get to know them better don't you you can know someone for a year and yet the moment you walk into their house you get to know them at a totally different level don't you yeah come on someone like thank you yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm not going to rummage around your wardrobe don't you don't be like please invite you to your home you know again. yeah that's right <laughs> so what happened you walk around and and you see if you will some of that person's glory their nature who they are what they enjoy, what their priorities are, what kind of pictures do they put on the wall, which people in their life are precious to them, what, what, what kind of 
I don't know, color scheme do they like? What, what's in their heart gets expressed in the way people decorate their home. And you, you, you see it. And what we have in God is God basically saying, my home I'm going to make and I'm going to decorate it with my glory. It just happens to be a solar system over here. <laughs> I'm going to hang another galaxy on that wall. I'm going to create the heights of the Himalayas and the depths of the Antarctic. I'm going to make a scope of this Grand Canyon so vast you can't see it from one side to the other. I'm going to make a blue whale that is so heavy you would not believe it if you saw it. I'm going to make a diplodocus. I'm going to make an anteater. I'm going to make an elephant. I, I, I'm going to make creatures that will make you stop and think and wonder who is the God who that would create this? And we get to walk around God's home looking at the glory of God. Amen? John Calvin called the universe, the stuff that we touch and feel, the theatre of God. I love that. We're sat right now in the theatre of God. You sit back and watch another David Attenborough documentary, you are in the theatre of God getting a fresh display of his glory. And in his creation we get two things displayed. Firstly, his strength his power. So Romans 1 says this, his invisible attributes, the things you can't see, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We get to see God's power in display in the things that are around us. And it's interesting when you watch the you know TV programs or series or whatever, and there is a portrayal like there's a vicar involved or a priest or whatever, and almost every single time the priest is there, and they are portrayed as ineffectual, limp-wristed, of no use to anyone, sideline issue, benign thing that doesn't actually do anything except for bless what's happening maybe along the way which is a reflection often as how we see God. He's this fairly ineffectual, weak God who may do something if he could. You know, he would step into that landslide and save those people if he could. He would stop the planes and oh, he, he would do all of that. But, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of, there's a weakness in God. There's a, there's a sense in which he may or may not be there. But if he is there, he can't do stuff in life. And yet the biblical God of glory is one of power. We're told that he right now sustains the universe by the word of his power. That the creations, the heavens and the earth were created out of raw power. Paul contemplates Jesus Christ and he talks about the raw might of his glory. That he comes back and he will not be this peasant who no one can notice because he just looks at, he is coming back in raw might in his glory Paul says that when the father raised Jesus Christ from the dead he was crucified on Friday laid dead Saturday on Sunday morning it was the glory of the father that raised him from the dead 
The glory of God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The glory of God is the power of God to do stuff in the world. That if we would go to him and ask him to intervene, he has power to do everything, all things at any time. There is nothing he cannot do. And we as a society have chosen to not do God. And what has happened then is we are left to our own devices internally and together to try and fix out society's problems. And as we have done that, I think if we took long enough and a good enough study, we could track the ways in which we've tried to push God out of society and our hearts and all of the ills and social issues and internal mental health issues that have gone up at the same time because we are left to ourselves with this knowledge that even if we could sort everything out, there is still death at the end of the day that renders everything meaningless anyway. And we live with this darkness, and yet in God we have power, and he could deposit power in your life so that even death itself will be transformed and will be someone who gives you promotion and adds meaning to your life, not a thing that renders everything meaningless. God has power, so we can go to him today. You can go to him. All of us today walk with strains, I would suggest. Issues, health, relationships, finance. You can go to him. He has power. He has ability to do stuff. We're praying that, even earlier, I think we're praying the leaders of our nation would just look to God. He has power to get through things that seem impossible in a moment. Secondly, the glory of God in his nature is his beauty. Which at first doesn't feel as like crunchy or functional as his power. And Christians often go to his power because we need like a powerful God to do stuff. So let's talk about, and, and a lot of Christians go there quite easily and rapidly. And I can understand it because I need something done. I pray, I need some help. I need to get through Wednesday. So just God, I can... And, you know, the beauty of God, I mean, that's nice, but, like, maybe we'll get around to it. Like, let's not get too frivolous with this. Like, we need him to do stuff in our... But actually, I think when, you, when we contemplate, think it through, the beauty of who God is, I would suggest it's actually functionally deeper and more helpful than anything else. Because when we have the power of God, it might sort a situation out. But when we have the beauty of God, we can walk through any darkness. We can walk through any trial, and if we've been captured by the beauty of who he is, we will be saved through it. Dostoevsky, who's a, a Russian novelist, he said in one of his novels, beauty will save the world. And that wasn't glib for him. He had a faith. I mean, if we pursue true beauty, beauty in all of its facets, and that's artistic beauty, things we look at, look at, film and music and art. If we look at that, if, and it's natural beauty, things we see in the world. And it's also the beauty of mathematics and science and beautiful code, I've heard. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. <laughs> there is symmetry and beauty in many, many places. If we can pursue that, we will find true beauty, the author of beauty, God himself whom the world is designed to create a thirst for and see his true beauty. So the psalmist says this in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I seek after, that I may dwell on the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. 
the church has had a fascinating relationship with art and it's kind of swung on 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 kind of very different kind of views on it really when we did finally after the first three four hundred years kind of get some acceptance in the mainstream of society and the church began to have some money and some status and some ease from persecution there was this flourishing of kind of artistic design this this hunger in us to express some of the beauty that we have caught glimpses of in god the reason why big buildings and beautiful buildings are bought are built and designed is because we want to express something of the glory and the beauty of who God is. So we walk into a building and it causes our hearts to stir and worship. People still travel the world to walk into these same buildings to get our hearts stirred. The reason our hearts are being stirred is because there's glimpses and traces of God that we're touching in the beauty of these buildings. And then what happened in the 1500s is that this reformation swept through the Catholic Church and some of the corruptions that are going on. And it the, the church began to center itself again around the word of God but what happened as sometimes some movements there, there was this kind of reaction that happened where we threw some of the baby some of the baby you know out with the bathwater and people would go around trying to establish the word of God at the center of the church again but alongside that would literally be vandalizing buildings to take away anything that would distract from the preached word of God and new buildings were built that were plain with nothing in them to distract you from the word of God because there was this under kind of feeling that worldly beauty might distract you from God's beauty which I would suggest is a slight misunderstanding of how God has created things because God has designed God's word to display his beauty and God's world to display his beauty. And I would suggest part of our calling as a church, if we're going to walk in step with the Holy Spirit who does pour out the gifts of creativity and beauty upon some, we are going to be pro-arts in our approach to London life. Amen? We are going to be pro-culture. We are going to celebrate beauty where we see it we're going to think that is a glimpse of the beauty of God if you're an artist you should look at look up Bezalel I've totally got it wrong it's embarrassing as a preacher but there's a guy in the Old Testament called Bezalel Bezalel thank you Jackie you should be preaching I don't know why I'm doing this job Because he says, God says, I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. One of the very first people who was anointed by God was an artist to create beauty. The tabernacle and the temple, you get these excruciating details about the designs of the tabernacle. If you've ever been there in your Bible, it's like, I get it, like 42 rings there and a gold pole there. And you're like, why? Because God is wanting to present beauty to us. This is a glimpse, a glimmer, a taste of who I am. And we see it ultimately in the the, the nature of Jesus Christ, just how he lived. True beauty. Dying on a cross. A man has never lived so beautifully ever. If you ever want your heart melted by true beauty, look at the Jesus dying on a cross. Have your heart inflamed for him again and again and again. Beauty will save the world. It's the beauty of God. Let me move on. The presence of God. Secondly, 
God didn't create the world and then get bored. This wasn't like a sideline hobby. He hasn't got like 400 other hobbies and the universe just happens to be one that he shelved a long time ago and let, you know, left it to rot. This is the thing that God is about. Out of this everlasting, exploding joy in his heart, he created a display of his glory in the universe so that you and I would get to enjoy fellowship with him. This is why he created everything that we have. From day one, God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is why he wanted to create us, so that he would walk with us. Just before dinner and a glass of wine, he would call us aside and we'd just share what's happening in our day. Sweet, sweet fellowship with God. And yet we chose to walk away from him and do life by ourselves. But here is the good news, that when we chose not to do God, God says, I am still gonna do you, and I am gonna pursue you. And we have this amazing moment where God sets up the tabernacle, that actually what, what God is doing when you read it rightly, that, that, that God is actually setting up this kind of mobile Eden again. And he gives us all these little instructions as these lampstands and these pictures and this water, etc. Which biblical said actually, when you read it, this is all just a mobile Eden that God is setting up, saying, "You may be walking away from me, but I am going to pursue you. I am going to walk with you. I am going to be after you. You are not going to let me go because I'm after you." And even in the temple, it was designed and structured so that you would be walking into a type of Eden and God chooses to dwell there. He says, you might be walking away from me, but I'm still here and I'm going to call you back to myself. We are going to enjoy that sweet fellowship once again. My presence is going to be known again. And when Jesus Christ dies, the presence of God on a cross, what we're told is that Jesus Christ is separated from the presence of his Father so that less than a mile down the road, the Father would tear the curtain that separated the presence of God in the quasi-Eden with us in two. So that Jesus would allow us a way back into Eden so that we could walk with God in the cool of the afternoon once again and we could know his presence. And this is the offer that we hold out to London because London is an exciting place to live but it is also a crazy lonely place to live sometimes. Some of you experience that. It, you, you can walk to work, you can be in the middle of nine million people and feel lonely. And yet the offer of the presence and the glory of God is you can always be with your maker, the one whom you are made for. You could walk alone in life, but you do not have to walk lonely because God's presence is there with you. And he is waiting for an invitation. So he's waiting for you to receive the invitation to come and know him. His presence that comes down, even gatherings like this as we worshipped. I don't know if you felt it. I sensed the presence of the Lord. The Old Testament, it was this cloud. The glory cloud, it's, it's called sometimes. For us, it's just the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We could put some smoke machines on, but Jesus doesn't need it. He, he's here with us now. I don't know, some of you even felt his presence here. That's the glory of God coming. His community is the carrier of the glory of God. And what we are setting our eyes on is a city filled with this glory. 
so that everywhere you walk, every bus that you get on, every train that you go on, every office that you sit in, every person that you meet, is a moment where the glory of God could spread. Almost like this vision from Ezekiel where the waters that we're promised in Habakkuk 2 that are going to fill the earth, this knowledge is going to flow and flow and flow out from this place so that every single soul that is parched and searching will find the end of their longings and their desires. Amen. Amen. If I could invite the band back up. And I just want to close with this. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know whether you love London or not. I mean, some of you might be here for work and it's like you're putting up with it. I love London. And uh, I was born in North London, in Camden. And I lived in West London, in Ealing. I did six years in Leeds, which I now look back on and think there was one reason for that. And that was to meet my beautiful wife, Toria. And then we came back to London and we moved to Kingston and we moved to Bromley and now we're in Fulham. And everywhere I go, I love London. And I've lived here almost all my life and I still walk around these streets amazed at this city. I, I'm just genuinely amazed. And uh, I just sit on the bus sometimes and just stare, like just an amazing, not in a weird way, like, you know, just... A, <laughs> It's amazing. It's not a boring city to be in. Sometimes I put on, uh, if you know Adele, one of her earliest songs is Hometown Glory. She grew up in Tottenham. One of my favorite songs. Sometimes I'm on the bus and I'm just walking, I stick on Hometown Glory and I just pray, Lord, would you fill this town with your glory? Lord, would you fill it with your glory? Would, would this be known for your glory would people speak about London as a place that God is known in that his sparkling beauty his strength is known in that his presence that you can go there and know God and my prayer is that people would move to London for many reasons but they may leave with an awareness and the knowledge of the glory of God and what I'm asking of you today, if you call Trinity Church London your home, would you pray for your own heart that he would give you a love and a vision for this city? Because we're told in Acts 17 that God appoints your seasons, your times and your seasons. And you may feel like you got here by chance. It wasn't quite your plan, but the office, you know, the company had an office in London. That's where you had to be. God has actually appointed you here for a reason. Could I ask that you would just ask, even as we pray this prayer and worship in this song, that you just ask, would you give me a vision and a love for this city? Because we need robust disciples of Jesus who will give themselves. Tori and I at this stage now, we feel like this is us. I've spoke to Steve about this as well. And he says, yeah, I think this is you. And Normally, Steve says, get on the plane and go somewhere else. So I feel like quite confident that the Holy Spirit and Steve are onto something. But we're, we're giving our lives to this city. That's, that's what we feel. We're planning on retiring here and just... Um, this is it. I, I want to just lay my life into this city, praying, loving, speaking, so that there might be a spiritual awakening. Nine million people who would see the glory of God. I want to be part of that here. I'm going to get on to the nations next week, but today is London. Please, Lord.
So can I ask you to stand? And just in your heart, just express something of how you feel. Just be real. You don't have to put anything on in church. God knows. Just express how you feel. And then I would like you to ask that you would ask God to put a love in your heart. Not just for the excitement of London, but for Londoners. And a vision for this city. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would birth something fresh in our hearts today. Fresh faith, Lord, for our neighbours and our friends and our family. Fresh awareness of what you want to do with this city. Fresh love for the pulsating energy of this city. I pray you would fill us with the knowledge of your glory, that we may have something to pass on, Lord, to our colleagues at work tomorrow. And I pray for every single person in this room who does feel lonely right now. I pray, Lord, for a fresh awareness of your glory. Your transcendent beauty that would flood every single person's heart here, I pray, that we may live full in your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I do pray for some amazing friends, Lord. I pray for some amazing friends for people in this congregation, Lord. I pray for, for better lifelong friends than some of you right now could have hoped for. I pray for that in London, Lord God. Awareness of your presence in community.